So come, let us worship the God who has set us free as we sing our first hymn together in Christ alone. Oh, 
Let us pray together. God, we thank you for this morning, for this time that we could gather together. I pray that my words in this message would come from your heart and come through your spirit. In all this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our series this morning through the church season of Epiphany, and we're doing this series called Unmasked. And in our series called Unmasked, we're looking at the ways in which when Jesus is revealed to be who he truly is, we see how people react to that, and we see what that means for us as well. And we see that sometimes people react in a way where they glorify God, they see the truth of who he is, and are amazed. We see other ways in which the people who see Jesus unmasked then conspire to kill him. This morning, I want to think about a bit of the reasons why we as Christians do the things we do, and it's because of the reasons Jesus did some of the things that he did. In this series as well, we're thinking along with um, different superhero metaphors. They're our sort of entry point into the topics that we've had. We've talked about all sorts of different superheroes. We've talked about Spider-Man. We've talked about um, Superman. We've talked about the Joker as a villain and, and all of these different ways to sort of start the conversation, to get us thinking. This morning, I want to think about one reason in particular for one superhero's existence, though every superhero just about you can find a reason why they do the things they do. And it's not just because they believe in good and evil, right? Usually it's um, some sort of backstory of why they do the things they do or that's to fight some kind of villain. Um, something happens to them that causes them to become who they are, the superhero that then fights crime or fights the big bad guys or does whatever they do to try and make the world a better place. They have a reason other than just doing good. One uh, superhero in particular is Batman, and he has a very, very well-known backstory. And in fact, you can find lists of how many times his specific backstory has been um, immortalized in film or cartoon or TV shows or whatever. And the backstory for Batman is Bruce Wayne, as a young man, I just revealed his secret identity, sorry, uh, spoiler, uh, Batman. But Bruce Wayne, as a young boy, is out on the town, and, and the story sort of varies, the details kind of change here and there, but basically he's out with his parents, and he's quite a young child, and while he's out with his parents, they get mugged, they get attacked, something happens, and um, his parents both end up being killed during this sort of mugging gone wrong, or perhaps it's some bigger conspiracy by a bigger bad guy, depending on which little pocket of Batman you're looking at. But in any case, Bruce Wayne, as a young boy, sees his parents killed in front of him through an act of crime. And he's also a inheriting billionaire. Convenient. And because of both factors, he's an inheriting billionaire, and he also witnessed his parents' gruesome murder, he then becomes obsessed with this idea of, of vengeance, of justice, of, of keeping things like that that happens to him from happening to other people. That is his raison d'etre. That is why he does the things he does, because he witnessed something traumatic and horrific, and that trauma and that horror lives with him and inspires him then to try and keep other people from experiencing that same sort of hurt, that same sort of pain that he did. 
Now, Batman has a lot of questionable um, uh, actions, questionable ways he goes about doing his business of fighting crime and, and making justice. And, and as a sermon for another day, you can talk about the idea of would the bad guys in Batman even exist if Batman himself didn't exist? And is it just sort of some kind of quirky superhero arms race between Batman and the superheroes, and if he didn't exist at all, would they be even exist? That's a philosophical question for one other day, but when we're thinking about his reason in particular, that's why he does it. He's not just some, you know, thoughtless agent of justice. He has a personal reason. He has something that motivates him, that gets him out of bed or keeps him out of bed at nighttime to do what he does. So why do we as Christians do what we do? That's what we're going to explore in the second half. But first, Joyce is going to come and read our text for us this morning. This morning's reading is taken from Luke 6, chapters 27 to 38. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who ill-treat you. If anyone hits you on one cheek, let them hit the other one too. If someone takes your coat, let them have your shirt as well. Give to everyone who asks you for something. And when someone takes what is yours, do not ask for it back. Do for others just what you want them to do for you. If you love only the people who love you, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners do that. And if you lend only to those whom you hope to get it back, why should you receive a blessing? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. No. Love your enemies and do good to them. Lend and expect nothing back. You will then have a great reward, for he is good to the unforget ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge others and God will not judge you. Do not condemn others and God will not condemn you. Forgive others and God will forgive you. Give to others, and God will give to you. Indeed, you will receive a full measure and generous helping poured into your hands, all that you can hold. The measure of you, sorry, the measure you use for others is the one that God will use for you. Thanks be to God for His word. In this passage. Um, it's sort of part two of Sermon on the Plain. There's more than just two parts. But we talked last week a bit about the Sermon on the Plain, which is sort of Luke's companion to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And they're called that because in Matthew, Jesus goes up on a hill. And in Luke's, Jesus is standing at a level place. 
but they have a lot of the same content. And you can hear some of the more famous sayings of Jesus here in our reading. Things like, um, turn the other cheek, um, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Um, do not judge or you too will be judged. Some of these are, are some of the more famous things that Jesus has said, things that have um, proliferated out of the church, even to the wider culture in terms of our ethics as a society. So I ask the question, why do we do the things we do? Well, in a wider sense, in sort of a macro sense, we do the things we do. We meet together on Sunday, which we call the Lord's Day, because it's the day of the resurrection. It's the day that Jesus, who was crucified, rose again, showing that he was who he said he was, that he was God, that he was God's anointed, and that he had risen from the dead. And so that's why we meet together. That's why we worship God. That's sort of the macro reason. That's the big reason why we meet together, why we do the things we do, and why Christianity as a religion exists. But why do we do the things we do specifically? And I'm talking about good works, things that, are we, that we deem good things to do versus the wrong things to do, the basic ethical question of good versus bad, wrong versus right. Why do we do the things we do? Well, we have this passage here in Luke from Jesus telling us about um, the good things to do, turn the other cheek, do not judge, all of that sort of stuff. So my question then is, do we do those sorts of things just because we're told to. And maybe so. And, and I think for a long time, this was sort of the way of the church is, well, Jesus was God and Jesus said to do these sorts of things. And so we should do it because it's in the Bible. The Bible says so, right? Yeah, maybe so. But I want to pull the thread on this a little bit. I want to think about that sort of justification because the church has used that justification for a while. And I think the church has used that in a misguided way. The church has used this notion of we should do what we're told, almost because we should be probably at the core of it afraid of God, because God is the sort of angry judge parent type who's told you to go clean your room, and if you don't clean your room, you're going to get in trouble. And, and that's sort of the, the implicit kind of nature of that. And that's been taken really, really far, especially in centuries past with the sort of fire and brimstone theology as we think about it now, this looming idea of the punishment of hell, that God's going to throw you into hell unless you're, you're good. And that sort of has been the driving force. It's a really powerful force and it's really effective. And so churches have grasped onto that because it's a really effective way of getting people to do the kind of things you want them to do. Fear is a very, very powerful motive. And the church is not innocent in using that fear to manipulate and to motivate people. But as I said, I want to pull the thread on that motiv motivation a little bit. Because at the core of it, and in a sort of absurdist way, what that makes our faith into is a sort of interaction with Jesus and God in which they're sort of playing good cop, bad cop. And God is the bad cop going, I'm going to punish you, you know, the, going to throw the book at you. And he's, you know, the big gruff detective sergeant in the interrogation room going, you've done wrong. You've sinned. Everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. And then Jesus kind of comes and goes, no, 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 go sit in the corner. No, no, it's okay. No, no, I, I love you. Like, I, I died for you. It's okay. It's okay. But, but really, you should, you should do these things because God over there, you know, he's pretty angry. But, but you know, but I love you. It's okay. I love you. Shh, don't tell. Like, I love you. And, and 
In that sort of absurdist good cop, bad cop, where God's angry and Jesus is loving, seems really inconsistent with the New Testament. And it seems inconsistent in interesting ways with the songs even that we've been singing this morning. So the way I also want to think about this is we sang this song, um, Big Family of God, where God loves each and every one he's made. Does that sort of square with this notion of an angry God wanting to punish us? Even in the song In Christ Alone, our first song, is this beautiful, um, like, grand song about the love of God, the death of Jesus covering our sins and welcoming us in, again, in the same sort of notion of family of God. But there's one wee line in In Christ Alone which always sorts of, sort of bugs me, and not just me. There's a line in the verse, and I think it's the second verse, when it says, the wrath of God was satisfied. And we sing it with gusto, and it fits that sort of notion, that that theology of the angry God who wants to punish us, that we sort of narrowly escape because of good cop Jesus. I don't know if this is true exactly, but I've heard an interesting story. So I think um, a few of you will know more about the uh, formation of this hymnal um, than probably even I do, and you'll know more than maybe some people sitting there. But this is Church Hymnary, um, the fourth edition, and this is um, produced uh, almost, well, not exclusively, but predominantly in Scotland. It's a beautiful hymnal. It's made actually fairly recently. It sort of supplanted CH3. Many of you will, will remember CH3 and remember when this purple hymn book Um, became uh, the sort of standard hymnal in most churches of Scotland. It's a a really, really well-done book. A big um, group of people were involved in editing and putting it together. Not every song that's in here is in exactly as the author originally wrote it. Um, There are wee edits to different things. There's actually quite a funny story of the church my wife grew up in. There's the song um, that's quite well known called Look Forward in Faith. We all know Look Forward in Faith. That was written by the minister at my wife's home church. He was there for many, many, many years. He um, presided over the wedding of my in-laws and um, christenings of my brothers-in-law, all of that sort of thing. was there for very many years. And he wrote the song Look Forward in Faith along with the organist at the church called Andrea. And there's one wee note in it, and maybe Ashley and Bevan and Jenny can, can think of the note in Look Forward in Faith that's a bit odd. Is there a, wee, is there a note in there that's kind of strange? Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a strange note in there. So John Bell, um, who's the famous um, Scottish hymn writer and theologian, asked Andrea Steele to change that wee note because he didn't like it. And he said, no, I don't, I don't like that note. We're not going to put the song in CH4 unless you change that note. And she put her foot down and she refused and she actually got her own way, and the song went in as she intended it. So that's one of the rare ones where a song actually goes in. But throughout the process of compiling this hymnal, they made some edits. The song in Christ Alone is not in CH4. And they asked, uh, there are other songs by um, Stuart Townend and, and, and the, the authors of In Christ Alone, but CH4 is not in there. The compilers of it disagreed with the theology of that one line, the wrath of God was satisfied. That that line isn't set in stone. That line was invented by an author. And they suggested one wee tweak, and they said, look, here's a tweak. Instead of the wrath of God was satisfied, this is maybe more theologically accurate and, and, and actually fits with the rest of the song. How about the love of God was magnified? 
So as you're singing, and on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. I think that fits actually with the rest of the song better than this bad cop idea of a wrathful God sort of looming over the situation, hoping to inflict some kind of vengeance and punishment. That actually Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate example of love, the ultimate example of God saying yes to humanity, the ultimate example of the open arms welcoming us as we are into that big family of God like we just got the kids to sing along with. That, I think, is far more consistent with who Jesus is. And so here's the reason, and it's buried here in our text this morning. There's a line in the middle of the text. It says, even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again, but love your enemies, do good and lend, expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he and that's just a masculine pronoun there for Jesus, or for God. But God is neither masculine nor feminine. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So the idea of the ethics of Christianity, the idea of doing good, why we choose right over wrong, isn't just because we're told to, otherwise we're going to be punished. It actually gets into the very heart of who God is. The very core of God's identity revealed in Jesus and revealed in the love of Jesus is to do good, is to love your enemies, is not to judge. Those aren't just things that we're told to do in a vacuum as like instructions, again, like go clean your room. We do these things and we act in this way as Christians because that is the heart of God, because that is the character of God. It's not just a list of God's demands lest we be thrown into eternal hellfire. It actually is far greater than that, and that to me is a much better motivation. That's a much better reason to go and do good isn't a fear of punishment or isn't just because we've been told to. But the idea of doing good, the idea of loving our neighbors, the idea of turning the other cheek, of not judging, of welcoming, of helping those in need around us, of loving each and every human being for who they are as God created them. And we do that because that is the love of God. That is the love of God lived through us. And that's incredible. Isn't it? We're not just doing what we're told as, as, as if we're just wandering around. Well, well you know, we should, we should put some food in, in the basket at Tesco for, you know, for the food bank because, you know, well, we were told to and otherwise, you know, might get into trouble with the big man upstairs. But it's actually the character of God to love, to be merciful. And that is shown most fully in Jesus dying on the cross taking our sin, ending death, dying himself, the love of God was magnified. Now that is a reason I can get behind. That's motivation that gets me up in the morning. Let's pray together.
God, we thank you for what you have taught us. But we thank you most of all that you have taught us about who you are. And that at your core, at your character, it is love. It is love for each and every one of us. I pray that we would show that love, show your love through our own actions. Give us the strength and courage to be your love in this world. In all this we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let us go from this place, showing the love of God to those around us through our words and through our actions. And may the blessing of Christ go with you today. Mm -hmm.